This is episode 60 of Cinescope. And you're killing me, Smalls. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Mikey Thistle to talk about one of our favorite films, The Sandlot. Mikey, how are you doing tonight? Oh man, I would be lying if I said I wasn't tired, but as I have mentioned to you many times in the past, Chad, it is always a pleasure to come on and just talk about a movie that you really enjoy. I mean, I feel like it's incredibly life-giving and energizing. So I already feel myself after a long day of work and then post-work activities, I still have the energy to talk about The Sandlot, one of the greatest movies of all time. <laughs> yeah, I definitely feel the energy coming back a little bit myself because, who boy, I was. we were talking a little bit before we hit the record button and... We, we're both exhausted. I, I'm in a full-time <laughs> job now, and we're fresh off a couple of weeks of no Cinescope, which was sad, but uh, we've got two coming out this week, which is cool. And so I'm just glad to be back in it, back in the, the hot seat talking about movies again, and glad to have you back on the show after uh, being about a year since you were last on. Has it? Oh, man. See, now I feel bad. I <laughs> Has it really been a year? I mean, because yeah, that's like, God, that's so, that's so crazy. Yeah, I don't remember the exact number. It was probably like episode eight or something like that oh well yeah it wasn't what are we up to now what are we on 60 what is this 60 yes sir. Chad, i am so incredibly proud of you thank you mikey <laughs> <laughs> I, lo- I love i love seeing good podcasts uh do well and uh i think i have never heard a single person say a bad thing about this podcast so well thank you very much and i, I i've taken so much from you over these 60 episodes, so many real world people coming on. It's been a great uh, uh, breeding ground for good discussion. So glad to have you back. Do you want to reintroduce yourself and tell the people out there listening since it has been so long, (laughs) who you are, what you do, all that kind of stuff. Some people know me by Mikey. Some people know me by Fizz. Some people know me by that guy that doesn't ever stop talking when he's on Chad's podcast. But uh, I, I podcast over at realworldtheology.com where we say that story is powerful and entertainment is not mindless. We tend to look at film um, not necessarily from a, uh, a purely uh, enjoyment perspective, but just kind of really trying to get down to the, the nuts and bolts of the theme of a film or the, the reason a film was made. We do talk about things we like. We do talk about things we dislike, but we kind of ask a little bit larger questions like what was this film made for? Like who was it made for? Why was it made? And does that have any relevance to the world we see around us? So that's probably like the most ambitious answer that I could give. And if you listen to the show, you realize there's probably way more like fart jokes or something in there than, <laughs> than, I, than I'm, I'm, I'm given. But if, if that interests you in some way, I mean, if you're listening to Cinescope, you probably are into listening to films, uh, movie or podcasts about films anyway. So, you know, we might be up your alley. Give us a try. Realworldtheology.com. 
we definitely do approach films in a somewhat the same way you do dive a little bit more in depth into the themes specifically um, and we include theme discussion, but it, it we do have similar approaches as far as uh, taking films beyond face value. Well, stop trying to encroach upon my audience then, Chad. <laughs> noted, noted. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm ready to move on to our film discussion if you are, Mikey. Uh, he said, I, I was born ready, even though the Sandlot wasn't out when I was born, I was born ready to talk about the Sandlot. So let's do this. Let's do it. This movie was released on April 7th of 1993, was directed by David Mickey Evans, who also directed First Kid, Beethoven's Third and Fourth, The Sandlot 2, which honestly really surprised me, uh, The Final Season, Ace Ventura Jr., Pet Detective, and <laughs> Smitty. <laughs> so quite a filmography. Really, The Sandlot is the standout in this guy's career. He also wrote the screenplay along with Robert Gunter. And the music here is by David Newman, who also composed the scores for The Brave Little Toaster, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, DuckTales the movie Treasure of the Lost Lamp, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, The Mighty Ducks, The Flintstones, Tommy Boy, Matilda, Anastasia, Galaxy Quest, Serenity, the 2013 animated Tarzan film, and most recently, Girls Trip. Hmm. David Newman might be my, my, my hero. Yeah, I really appreciate those those films, especially from the 90s. Like Galaxy mm-hmm. Quest is a great mm-hmm. film score. Uh, I remember one of the – see, if I would have thought about it harder, The Brave Little Toaster is probably some like a film that had more impact on me when I was like – you know, when like you're a certain age, like you haven't seen a lot of films. And so anything that's even remotely profound or emotional like can stick with you way longer just because – your, your your scope your, your cinescope is so much smaller <laughs> um and that's the brave little toaster i think that was one of the first animated movies i saw and boy did it wreck me little little mikey just sitting wrecked in his whatever i don't say underoos <laughs> but whatever i had on anyway anyway <laughs> uh the movie stars tom geary mike vitar patrick renna chauncey Lapardi, marty york brandon quinton adams grant gelt victor dematia shane obadzinski Karen Allen, Dennis Leary, James Earl Jones, Marley Shelton, and Art LaFleur. <laughs> so what was your first experience with this movie that you remember, Mikey? Because we were both probably fairly young-ish when this movie came out. I don't know mm. exactly when you were born, but uh, oh, I, I, I can definitely say you were older than I was <laughs> when it came out. Yeah, I w- this, this is something I'm running into more and more, which probably is tangential. But I was actually going to ask if you were even born when this movie came out. Yes, I was. I was a year old. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I'm like I say. This is what I'm running to more and more. I, I, I am I'm I'm having these great conversations with people, uh, these thoughtful conversations about film with people. And I'll be like, oh, yeah, well, it came out like in the 90s. Of course they saw it. And I'm like, what? What do you mean you were born in 91? What do you mean you were born in 94? Like, how are you out of high school? What year is it? Oh, gosh, get off my lawn. You know, one of those kind of things. Oh, man, the first time I saw this movie, I do not remember what was going on in my life. The first time I saw this movie, I was 12. Nope, I was 11. I was 11 when this movie came out. So, gosh, what was going on when I was 11? I don't know, but movies were still awesome to me. And I wasn't so far removed from my youth that it didn't feel like a movie that wasn't made specifically for me. 
Um, I don't, I don't believe I saw this probably, you know, it wasn't like a movie that like, I saw in theaters or anything like that. I think I saw it probably like a year or so after it came out. Like, like I saw most movies like on, you know, like TBS or TNT channels that don't really exist anymore for millennials and post millennials. So, um, but I do remember I loved it. I remember, I remember instantly loving it. I remember how could, so how could one movie be so entertaining? How could I be on the edge of my seat about a movie about a baseball going over a fence? Like that doesn't even make sense to me. Um, but it made me feel all sorts of feelings that I assume we're going to get into later, but I wish I could remember the first time. Cause I'm sure that first time I would have loved to watch little Mikey's face as that plot unfurled. Yeah. I don't remember the first time I watched it in its entirety. At least I do remember. I have early memories of, um, when I say early, I don't mean like I was a toddler. I, I was probably 10, 12 when, uh, I was somewhere with my family and my little brother and we were at one of my brother's friends uh family camper trailer for some reason i don't remember what the specifics were but we were there (laughs) and we watched this movie on this little like 10 inch tv screen with one of one of those tvs that had like a built-in dvd or maybe even vhs player uh that was the first time dvd player (laughs) yeah oh wait it it might have been yeah yeah it might have been I, I don't know. Uh, but in any case, it wasn't the best quality. I don't remember sitting and watching the whole movie, although I specific I, I specifically remember the the parts where Squints is telling the story about the beast. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just one of those. I remember that setting, uh, hearing that story on the screen. And other than that, I don't remember the first time I sat down and watched it its entirety. But like you, it's a movie that I've always considered a classic of my childhood. And it's, it's been a classic of so many people's childhoods. It's just one of those movies that seems to capture childhood more than, or better than a lot of other movies tend to. I don't know what it is about it exactly. I mean, baseball isn't necessarily the most universal sport and this isn't necessarily about baseball either, but there's just something about the setting, about the camaraderie between these, these teammates and these friends on this sandlot and the adventure they go on that really rings true to so many people's childhoods. Mm-hmm. What is it about the story in this movie that sort of draws you in or story or filmmaking techniques or anything that, that that's it's sort of an all encompassing category? Well, th- I think this is one of the hardest, the hardest things to articulate about this film for me. And it, it's one of those things where, if you're talking to someone about the Sandlot, you can kind of look at them, give a knowing look, and you both know, but it's very hard to explain. And the best I can figure is it's it's basically just the writing. Maybe, maybe you want to chalk it up to the acting uh, to some degree, but this movie, like if I feel like if I was reading the script cold, I would think this was so corny. I was like, they said what? They're teasing him how this is so dumb. But when it comes to life on screen, like at no point do I think that it's adults writing like a kid's movie. I feel like I was like, those are the exact ways that I tease people when I was a kid. Those are the ways that I was teased when I was a kid. Those are the things that I was concerned about. The, 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 just the, the way that people thought they were cool or not cool 
or the 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 incredible um outlandishness of like a simple dare that seemed like the end of the world just that that captured my childhood i've not like specifically but it alluded to it in so many ways um and like i said i don't know if it's the script or what but it, it's so honest that anytime there's something corny or someone calls someone like a fart liquor or something like that something that would be like that's so dumb you're like nope that's exactly how i argued <laughs> when i was on the bus on the way to school that's when i was you know a, a small child that's that's how i would tell my friend he needed to do a thing or this this thing that baseball to them this most important thing in the world like that's the only thing that mattered i re- it reminded me of when i was young and like there were things that like were everything to me, you know, like it was my, like there was nothing else in the world, like my Ninja Turtles for like a season or my GI Joes for like nothing was more important. Um, And just the way that they captured this and their day started completely revolved around and ended with this activity, whatever, whatever you want to credit the actors, the director, the, the actual screenplay itself, whatever it is about this story, captures that feeling and packages it in such a way that I don't roll my eyes, but I lean into it. So I I want that to have a name, Chad, and I can't give it a name. You know, I think part of it might even be chalked up to the fact that we have a narrator in adult Scott and he, he he's referencing back to this time in his childhood, this best summer of his life when he made friends and he played baseball and mm-hmm. got into the biggest pickle of his life. I mean, that's a phrase <laughs> that he says three or four times while narrating the film. I think having a narrator like that, that we, uh, especially now as adults, can identify with and think back to our own childhood and reminisce along with him and find those parallels like you're talking about, find those moments that we spent with our friends that echo these moments that we see on screen. I think that's a big part of the nostalgia of this movie. Um, In fact, uh, I think it's Roger Ebert's review. I saw him say this is pretty much like a summer version of A Christmas Story. (laughs) Um, It's the same style of storytelling where you've got these sort of shorter vignettes. It's not the whole film is about the the ball going over the fence. That doesn't really come until the last 45 minutes of the film. Mm-hmm. The whole rest of it is about Scotty introducing himself and he's an outsider and he doesn't fit in. He doesn't know how to play catch. I mean, he's a nerd. He doesn't, he doesn't know anything about that life. And in his desperate attempts to make friends, Benny reaches out to him and, uh, and, helps him to fit in and gives him a glove and gives him a hat and teaches him how to throw and catch. And then from there, it's about going to the pool together. And then it's about going to play against these other kids who are being jerks or whatever it might be. (laughs) Um, It's, it's finding those common experiences and the, the, the narrator helps us to do that. And so the narrator helps us to do that. Yeah. I I think, not only not only does the narrator help, but I think it's almost vital to the story. Like it acknowledges the fact that you're not getting 
the like when you when you're watching the kids that you're you're getting someone who learned from their lessons because as someone was reminding me in the real world theology discussion group recently uh like one of the things that we can really get behind is when you realize that your protagonist is going to progress and they're going to learn from their mistakes and they're going to grow as a character and get to hopefully a place of betterment kind of even though that's a kind of an anomalous direction and by having a narrator that um, is nostalgic, but kind of well-spoken and thoughtful and honestly, an engaging storyteller, you go, okay, well, obviously he's kind of got his stuff together here and we see where he starts and you're like, how does that kid get to that guy? And it's not something that's explicit, but like I say, I think it's, it's just subtle enough that it draws you in because we really, we really want to know how he goes from total loser to kind of like this guy who's really thoughtful about where he's come from and what he's done and the greatest pickle of his life. Um, like I said, not to mention that, you know, we have tons of great stories along the way, um, tons of great lines. I mean, I remember one of the, one of the coolest things about this movie was when, all like most of my friend group or all of my friend group at the time, um, probably after a couple of viewings, it's one of those things that we would, we wouldn't sit around and quote it. Like we would some movies, like some movies you would just sit and quote at each other. Uh, like when I talked about Robin Hood Men and tights, we would just sit and quote that movie endlessly to each other. This is one of those ones that it's quotable moments worked its way into your vernacular. Like that's how, um, that's how seamless they seem to be. Right. I mean, heck, you know, like you're killing me smalls. Like that, that's almost like common colloquial now. Mm-hmm. Like almost everyone will use that. Um, and that's, you know, it's from this movie. Like just the, the idea that people would just say like the great Bambino, <laughs> you know, like just the way you would say things. Um, it, anytime you say these phrases, you say it like the characters um, just, it it's in there. It's it's seeping into every pore, and um, I didn't realize that's also tangential from the thing that I started on. But I just I just really love that about the film too. Um, I love I love sneaky um, what do you call it sneaky sneaky quotability. Uh huh. Um, so it's not like a comedian where you just you know joke 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 back and forth. Who's got the coolest jokes? Who can remember the most jokes from the movie? But when you're just having a normal conversation, it comes up. I think that's good writing. I think so too. And I think on the, the, the kind of quotability that this movie has, it's certainly not as quotable, but it reminds me of the princess bride. Um, the princess bride has all these, these single one liners that you, like you said, fit into your vernacular. And from there, um, it's just something that everybody's familiar with. It's something that you can use all the time. And it, it it's a shared experience with the film and the Sandlot it's not as quotable as The Princess Bride, but it has that same level of quotability, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, like I said, we're on the same page, Jen. <laughs> that that opening prologue that you were talking about, where you see adult Scotty uh, as he's starting to narrate, or right before he starts to narrate, something that actually stood out to me this time watching that I don't know if I'd really lingered on before was the fact that he goes into his office you pan around, he's drinking his coffee, and you see all these pictures and all this baseball memorabilia all along the wall. And it's a lot of Beirut kind of stuff. You see a few baseballs, signed baseballs. You don't have a lot of context for it. But then in the middle of all this baseball memorabilia, 
he has this framed photo of him with his friends. And so, again, that gives you an outcome. This, that tells you that at the end of this story that he's about to tell us, these are the this is the group of friends that we're going to see. And it also sort of overemphasized the friendship that they did end with, the, the, the trials they'd go through together and how it would just bring them all closer by the end. And I, I really liked that that frame is amidst everything else that's important to him because even now, 30 years later, he still reminisces about this particular group of friends he had for these few summers as a child. Yeah. And also in that, that initial, um, and that initial prologue, we are already introduced to the concept of Babe Ruth and calling his shot and, uh, doing something that nobody had done before. And so we've already got it planted in our head that Babe Ruth is going to be important to the story beyond just being <laughs> a baseball player. Uh, really cool, uh, really smart world building as far as planting seeds early and paying them off later. I think when you when you have movies that are kind of made for kids, I almost feel like most of them are too formulaic. They're too dumbed down and they're just not interesting. Like like they're like, oh, we're making this for kids so we can not try to be we cannot try to to push the envelope. Not that not that the Sandlot is really like risque or anything like that but it's just it's just engaging on a level that most movies that are i guess you know kid friendly i really want to use that term loosely i just don't i can't think of very many movies that deal with growing up that aren't incredibly cynical like you know the coming of age film it's like incredibly gritty or cynical these days um or the one that's like just like like too much of like a, just like a comedy, like a, like a Richie rich kind of thing. Uh, and the Sandlot, I feel like is incredibly earnest without being like cynically earnest. Uh, it's, it's just like I said, it's earnest. It, it just is like, it's like, this is, this is a thing and it's an important story to tell. And we're not trying to make it too silly though. There, though it's silly and we're not trying to make it too serious though. There are serious things. I mean, like, one of the things that I almost always forget about the film is just the, just the home dynamic that, um, that Scotty Smalls has and how that's something that he's trying to navigate. Um, especially if you consider it in the context of like the time that this movie is taking place and how that's not like a necessarily normal thing at the time. So like there are serious aspects to this film, but it doesn't, it doesn't make that serious aspect like this crippling thing. It gives it weight, but not crippling weight. And like I said, and there are hilarious moments. There are, like I said, kids calling each other booger eaters or, you know, <laughs> um, whatnot. Um, and it's silly and they tell scary stories with a flashlight, you know, and they do pool pranks where they get to possibly sexually assault the lifeguard. Um, <laughs> ha 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 ha. Um, but like, it's never, it's, it's never too silly. Like it's not outrageous. It's not home alone. I'm just going to quote lots of Macaulay Culkin movies basically. <laughs> um, so like I said, I love that it finds that middle ground. It's incredibly earnest. Like it's very, like, it's very sincere, uh, about, um, it's characters in the story that it's telling. And I don't, I just don't think you find that very often. So, and you're, you're viewing the film simultaneously through the eyes of the narrator 
uh, as an adult and through the eyes of the children, like the whole mystery of the beast, the legend of the beast. Um, for most of the film, we don't know anything about it. When we're first introduced to the concept of him, Scotty is standing out by that back fence. He hasn't even met the kids yet. And he's hearing these rumbling sounds from the other side of it. And then when the ball gets tossed over to the fence or hit over to the fence, he walks over, he starts to pick it up and it, it growls at him and he jumps away and we don't know <laughs> what is happening. Um, and then later, as we start to learn more about the beast, as Squints tells his story and the treehouse, and we're seeing these old timey, like newsreels kind of things. And the beast is always depicted with this like abnormally large puppet dog. That looks terrifying. (laughs) And it's like this picture in a child's head of this creature that they haven't actually seen yet. And they're just imagining this giant bear dog because that's the, that's what the legends have perpetuated. Yeah. And then all of a sudden at the end of the film, yes, it's a big dog, but it's a normal dog. (laughs) And it's (laughs) just funny that so much, yeah, it's so much of what we (laughs) see of the beast throughout the film is sort of the, the kids tall tale version of it. Mm. Which I mean, again, it, that they're capturing like this idea of childlike wonder without making it again too. uh, they don't punish us for having childlike wonder, but they don't make it like silly either. Um, it just feels like, Hey, I remember when things felt big, um, which is even more surprising because like I said, I was probably again, when I, when I actually saw this film, I was probably like, 13 or 14. So it's not like I was like an adult looking back at my childhood. I was like, man, I remember just like five years ago when this is all I worried about coming home from school and playing this or running around (laughs) in a circle in the yard all, you know, and I remember when snow, you know, I thought snow was like a thousand feet deep. And when I look at pictures, it was like three inches, you know, like just the world seems so much bigger and tall tales do that. Now, moving on to specific characters, let, let's focus on our main character, Scotty. What, beyond what we've already said, do you have to say about him? Well, I feel like he he does a great job in the film, like like the actual the actual actor, um, the kid actor. It's it's funny. I actually chuckled a little bit when you were like reading all the people that were in the movie. I was like. Yes. So who's in this movie? Uh, Dennis Leary, James Earl Jones, and a whole bunch of people that you will never probably see again. Um, uh, which is kind of a bummer because like I said, I think they all um, did a really great job. I completely believe they were all kids and, and smalls just, you know, there is, I want to find words besides sincere and earnest or honest. Um, there's something about him he's so unsure yet positive, uh, like confused yet searching, uh, trusting. Uh, and I don't know how you capture all that. It just, it astounded me. And I, like I said, I love the fact that his character is, he's not just like an uncool kid. Like he's got something to offer too. He also, uh, is tr- like I said, is wrestling with his home thing, which like I said, the more I talk about it, the more I realize how, uh, how much that really stuck with me. I remember actually thinking about that the first time, um, I saw the movie just wrestling with home life, trying to find a place where he belongs and desperately wanting that. And also 
more than once in my life realizing that's how I felt at different ages, not just when I was young. So I just, he is an, he's an incredibly great protagonist for me personally to follow. I mean, his relationship with his dad, I mean, Bill, it's funny. He, he uses the different name depending on who he's talking to. When he's talking to his mom, it, that's when he uses dad because his mom wants him to think of his new stepdad as his dad. Because mm-hmm. his real dad's not around. His his real dad, I think, actually died when he was a kid. Um, and then when he talks to Bill, he worries that he's not accepted as his kid. I mean, obviously, he's not his real dad. And maybe he, he has this fear of not sort of fitting the standard that he would expect for a son. I, I don't know exactly what it is, but it takes him a long time and takes a time of honesty and uh well, what uh, the end of the film when they they finally bond over baseball and they they they're honest with each other and uh, the whole rest of the film has happened to this point and then he says I, I after that point I didn't have a problem calling him just dad um, it was like they they they'd overcome an obstacle in him uh, lying about the baseball at first or stealing the baseball and then recovering it and bringing it back with something new and it wasn't just that he brought him back a new baseball. It was that he was honest with him. It was that they were able to have an honest conversation about it. And then they were able to bond over the, the ball itself, which is really cool. And that's when their relationship is uh, cemented as truly father and son. Yeah. Like I said, I, I, it it seems like, like a, like the B story in this, but without it, I don't think the A story has as much punch. That, you know, that's a that's a themes and relevance conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're right because the the fact that he lost the ball in the first place wouldn't be such a big deal if he wasn't already trying to gain the approval of his stepdad. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, and then just another concept of kids blowing everything out of proportion and every small decision is the end of your life. Uh, the first time he goes to the sandlot and he's meeting the kids and he tries to throw the ball and he doesn't know how he, he says, <laughs> my life is over. And he starts, he, he just runs away. And then uh, when the ball does go over the fence at the end of the film, again, his life is over there. There's, there's a couple times in that film, you, your life can't end every day, but as a kid, th- those small events are mountains in the moment and mm-hmm. so there are just these these obstacles that pop up and oh no i'm never going to get past this my life is over but <laughs> after he uh, messes up throwing the ball that first time benny invites him to practice the next day and teaches him how to throw teaches about a catch everything's fine he gets the ball back eventually everything's fine and so there's a lesson there uh that as kids yes things can be blown out of proportion but you just have to take each new day. Well, I think that in of itself is one of those things for me that pays off because he does, you know, he's basically talking about his life is over and every time it's obvious hyperbole. But then when he finally is talking to Mr. Myrtle at the end and Mr. Myrtle's like, I take it back. You're not in trouble. You're dead where you stand. (laughs) (laughs) And he finally hears someone else like affirming his hyperbole and it just uh, cracks me up. Except, you know, obviously it's said in that awesome James Earl Jones voice. So it's way it's way better than 
um, any line has uh, to deserves to be delivered. So that's true. <laughs> what about Benny? You know, Benny is really the standout character for me from looking back at my childhood. He was he was cool. He was a little bit older, maybe. He was the baseball star. Um, and then watching it today, he's he's just the good guy of the group. Like mm-hmm. everybody else, it sort of falls into the pitfalls of being a kid and making fun of other kids. I mean, that happens, and there, there's nothing wrong with that. It's something you grow out of. Benny's already grown out of that, and he's a good guy. He never looks at Scotty with anything less than respect, and it's he's just a really cool character in that way. Well, I think that I think the probably the most notable thing for me about uh, Benny is the fact that he's like the the mature uh, I mean they're all kids but you know he's obviously like a little bit older looking than the rest of them um, he's he's a little bit more I don't want to say good looking because that seems like weird to say about a kid but like all the rest of them are kind of like like they look like little kids and he kind of looks like he's becoming a dude and he's like the jock and in almost every movie, the person who plays this role is the jerk. Maybe they learn a lesson by the end of the movie, but they're always like a jerk or lording it over people. Um, and he does two things. One, he's exactly what you said. He he defies all of those stereotypes. He is by far the coolest guy, but he's also the most compassionate. And that's something we just don't see um, for, from very many movies. Because typically it it's it makes the the conflict of the story harder to tell because you have to actually have better characters. So you can't just lazily write in stereotype jock. You have to say, man, what makes this person a good or a, a good or bad person? And they make Benny a good guy and popular and athletic and cool and all these things. Um, like he's good at everything. Uh, so, and he's smart. Like he's got great plans. He's, you know, he, he's uh, a proven leader and he's not just like a leader because he's the strongest. He's like a leader because like he's a good leader. Um, and then the the, fa- the fact that he the he succeeds still at the end. And um, if you look at his success and you compare it to small success, I think one of the things that I love about these characters is that, you know, uh, Scotty Smalls is telling the story and he has found quote success in his life, um, like contentment, um, something that he loves doing, but he wasn't the one winning the world series. You know, he wasn't the one stealing home. Uh, you know, he wasn't the one that outran the beast. Um, but he, he still was a hero of sorts. Like he, he did what he needed. And so it's cool that our, like this movie wasn't about Benny. Um, but it was about smalls. And I think it takes a really great character in Benny for us to root for Benny, but him not be the person that we're following. Um, Again, because I think it defies what we normally see in film. Scotty is the main character in a lot of ways. One, because he is narrating and two, we we get the glimpse into his home life. So he is the main character in that respect. But in sort of the overall takeaway of the film, I think of Benny almost as the main character because he's the one that's talking about uh, becoming legend about how heroes get remembered, but legends never die. And he's the one who has this dream at the end that encourages him to take the chance to jump the fence, to, to, to dare himself to become more than just this kid standing on the sidelines and actually 
sees a chance to do something great. And I'll talk more about that theme in itself when we get to relevance later, but it, it's just interesting that we sort of have two main characters when you look at the the film from the story perspective and then from the, the theme perspective. Mm. Are there any other of the kids that you wanted to talk about specifically? Those are our main two, but there are good moments from the other ones. Yeah, I think I think the things I like about the other other characters are moments. They're not necessarily the characters. I mean, I, I love um, you know, like Hamilton, the great Hambino. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like I think he's a great comic relief. I probably relate to him more than I'd like being like the loud, fat, funny kid. Um, at least I think I was funny. Uh, I'm like that was probably me. You know, basically imitating Benny the whole time being pretty decent at things, but never being Benny, um, relying a little too much on my mouth. Uh, but I mean, outside of him, like I said, you know, like we obviously get, uh, some great moments of squints and stuff like that. And yeah, yeah, it's fun, but, uh, it, you know, it is mostly about, uh, smalls and Benny. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I really had to say about squints was I, I think it's, it's cool that he's sort of like the designated historian, the, the storyteller, mm-hmm. the keeper of, facts about the beast or whatever it might be <laughs> it's almost like they're they're some sort of organization and benny is the president and squints is the historian and this character is this it's just funny that he has that designated role and he's the one who uh, provides us all the exposition regarding the beast uh, when scotty needs to know mm-hmm. and of course there, there's that scene with wendy peppercorn at the the uh public pool that's uh, one of the the more talked about scenes from the movie, I suppose. <laughs> the questionable scene. I mean, it's 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 another one of those things where like it's it seemed like one of those fun and games, innocent things when we were much younger. And now, like, I just I'm waiting for someone to write some kind of article about you know the sexualization or exploitation of you know squints upon Wendy Peppercorn. Um, on some kind of blog and you know i'm not condoning faking people out and making out with them but it's what teenagers do actually <laughs> the sad thing is it's probably what like elementary school kids do these days because kids these days <laughs> right well let's go ahead and transition into the music is there anything in particular about the score first uh, for this film that you wanted to talk about so this is where I always feel inadequate for your show, Chad. <laughs> the, uh, I'll say it again. Um, usually the best scores, if it's not if it's not an incredible opening theme, then usually the best thing that I want from a score is for it not to distract me. And I assume if it's not distracting me, it's because it's genuinely adding to the scene. And in that way, I love the music in the Sandlot, but it do- <laughs> but it doesn't like. I'm not sitting here going, man, that's like the last of the Mohican soundtrack or something like that. Um, but I do enjoy it. And obviously, uh, what do we say? What is that guy's name? David Newman or something? Yeah. Um, he apparently is my hero. I mean, you know, the brave little toaster, Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. Come on. 
there isn't anything particularly like hugely thematic or memorable from the score. Although mm-hmm. the, that the opening credits music, uh, as adult Scotty is walking into his office and uh, the the hallway is nice and empty and there's echoing footsteps and all that kind of stuff. That theme was stuck in my head a lot of today as I anticipated watching the movie and then talking about it, which is funny because I don't own this score. I don't even know if the score is available um, yeah. and I haven't watched the movie in a few years, but that theme in particular, as he is walking into his office in the morning uh, sticks out in my head. And so I was sort of humming it or had it in the back of my mind all day long. Um, and a lot of the music in this movie, as far as score goes, is reminiscent of the times. A lot of it's very Americana, um, mm-hmm. very like traditional kind of music. There's almost some moments where it's like 50s sitcom, leave it to beaver <laughs> kind of style music too. And there's even some of that uh, horror music that you get for the beast, uh, whether it's the, the, the backstory that we get in the treehouse or towards the end as the, the chase is beginning uh, some of that, but the other really standout piece of music by David Newman that really stood out to me was, uh, this, the heroic theme that plays it a few times. There's one when Benny first hits the ball into Scott's glove, he says, you know, stick your, just stick your glove in the air. I'll take care of the rest. And when he successfully nails the ball right into Scotty's glove, that theme plays. And then when he busts the guts out of the ball later, that same music plays. And then at the very end, when he steals home plate, uh, and there might be one or two other moments, but it's just this big, grand, very heroic kind of theme that is so fitting of the character uh, of who the character Benny is in this movie and what he accomplishes and sort of how he's viewed by his peers. He really is the leader and the hero and the legend of this team and of this neighborhood. And so the music fits right in. Mm-hmm. And uh, lastly, as far as David Newman's score goes. Um, the song that plays during the baseball game against the the Little Leaguers, um, <laughs> that music actually reminded me a lot of Monsters Incorporated this time, which is funny because Monsters Inc.'s score is by his cousin, Randy Newman. Um, so I don't know if it's like similar composition styles or what, but if you go and watch that scene and listen to that music, it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's like, wow, that's Monsters Inc. right there. At least that's what I think of. It's really cool. I was actually wondering if he, I was like, somebody Newman, wouldn't it be funny if he was related to Randy Newman? And now I know. Oh, there's an entire Newman composing family. In case you didn't know, there's Randy, well, Thomas, uh, David, a few others. It's it's just like a, the family business, apparently. Are they all living in Randy's uh, Oscar shadow? <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> um, what about the the like the soundtrack, the songs that are in the movie? Um, I mean, again, like nothing. Like it, w- it wasn't like anything was built around like a particular song. Um, I mean, I I think the the only one that I would go back and and really think that had significance was the uh, the tequila song. Uh huh. When they're like on the tilt a whirl and stuff, or whatever that thing is, when they have the big chew and they're all throwing up. I think that's that's clever on a couple levels. Um, but I, I mean, you know, most of it did a did a good job. See, for me, I think. A lot of the a lot of the songs, well, all of the songs in here are again indicative of the times. It's mm-hmm. early '60s, so we have a lot of the '50s, '60s kind of songs making their appearance. 
And so a lot of these songs, it was my first introduction to them watching it as a kid. <laughs> and so The Lion Sleeps Tonight by The Tokens, This Magic Moment by The Drifters, Ray Charles' rendition of America the Beautiful, Green Onions by Booker T and the MGs, Tequila, as you mentioned, and Wipeout by The Safaris, uh, the, the chase with the beast at the end of the film. These are all songs that when I hear them, like I picture the Sandlot because it's it was my first experience with these songs and in a in a way that they define sort of these children's childhoods and or these kids childhoods in the film by proxy they sort of defined my childhood i mean this is the kind of music that i still like to listen to today is this 50s 60s 70s kind of music and it it's just really interesting to me that i associate these songs with this movie i do the same thing with forrest gump uh, that's another big yeah. soundtrack movie where I mm-hmm. hear a song and I'm instantly transported to that scene in Forrest Gump. And I do the same thing with this one. Yeah, I think that's just an interesting thought um, just to hear you kind of like express that. J- just thinking about like how 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 song specific songs in film can basically remind you of a certain thing, especially if it's the first time you've heard that song, because for me, you know, even by this time, I'd heard most of these songs before. I was familiar with all these songs. So it's not like I had them in, ingrained upon my brain uh, with these specific scenes in mind. Because, you know, it wasn't the first time I heard them. It wasn't probably the first time I saw them in a movie. Because most of them are pretty popular songs that are used in lots of things. I feel like they could have just taken all the songs from this movie and just put them in, like, Back to the Future. Um, <laughs> for, or Back to the Future. Yeah, the the you know, the 50s part of Back to the Future. Uh-huh. Um, so, uh, gosh, that's just really cool because I'm now, now I'm starting to think of like, yeah, there's some songs that I remember not really being exposed to that well. Um, at the age that I saw like Forrest Gump, for example, um, and how I do associate certain songs with that. And, um, God, that's just, that's just really cool. I no, 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 no point to that. Just, just me thinking that that's a really cool thing. (laughs) And I mean, I'm not an overly patriotic person. I'm I'm happy to live where I live, and I'm uh, thankful for that. But I'm never more patriotic than when I'm watching the America the Beautiful scene on the baseball field with the fireworks overhead, <laughs> and the kids yeah. are just up, staring up, gawking. It's like, oh man, this is what it's all about. And I always, I always go back to the quote from Moneyball at this point, where Brad Pitt says. How can you not be romantic about baseball? And it's moments like that where this does feel like a baseball movie, where the the fireworks are going off, people are cheering, people are running the bases. It's just a, a great moment in this movie uh, where it's it's about celebration. And uh, like I said, I never feel more patriotic than I do while I watch that scene. I think the problem with that scene for me is that I don't think I've enjoyed a single July 4th since seeing this movie because none of them have been that magical. <laughs> right. <laughs> so well let's move into themes what's one of the themes that you take away from this movie well i i think there are a number of things that you could look at but i think one of the reasons um them- that this this film is uh so endeared to me is because thematically it hits on something that a lot of my favorite films do and that's this idea of kind of like kind of found family, but like the importance of community and friends and, um, uh, acceptance, uh, this whole thing, like his, again, I'll go back to this thing I've been talking about, like the whole episode, you know, his home life is, it's not like it's the worst thing in the world for him, but it also isn't comfortable. Like he doesn't really feel 
like at home at his house. He doesn't feel like he can be him. He doesn't even know maybe who he is, but he moves out into the world. He is brought into this group of people that is an incredibly close knit group of people that for, you know, it's the closest thing we'll probably see in a, in a found family kind of way for like a, a kid's coming of age movie. Um, this group that he grows up with and that is, is so precious to him and help shape him into the person that he will become. Um, that resonates a lot with me, um, and my background. And, uh, the more and more I see our culture become transient where, you know, unlike this time where you would move to a house and you would grow up your entire life living on the same block with the same people. Like we move. I mean, I remember I, I think I counted, I moved like 13 times before, um, I got out of high school. Wow. And I mean, lots of those times were like short moves, you know, just like down the street. But I was always, I felt like I was always moving and, you know, I was going to a new school and, um, at one, you know, at some point my parents divorced. And so home wasn't really a place that I, I found a lot of comfort, even though, you know, it wasn't, I was unloved. Uh, so it really became like the friends that I made and the circles that I became a part of, they became my family and they probably had way more influence on shaping who I became than uh, my actual family at some point in my life. And to see, to see this played out in this movie um, is relatable, a hundred percent relatable to me. And I think a theme that we, we saw in most of the two thousands. So this one, you know, is like almost a decade ahead of its time as far as the, as far as found family being a very important kind of theme. So that, like I said, that's what mostly sticks out to me most because it's personal, because I think it's, I think it's ahead of its time. And I think, um, uh, it says a lot about, um, what we're all, what a lot of us are longing for without getting, you know, too into it. Yeah. I think it's, it's about found family and inclusion and friendship you know, all it takes for Scotty to have the best summer of his life is for Benny to invite him along. Um, <laughs> so looking looking out into the world, look uh, whether it's within your workplace, whether it's within a social area that you like to visit frequently, finding people who maybe don't fit in, finding people who need somebody to reach out and to include them, um, get to know them, to give them a chance. That's what this movie shows in a big way, I think is that Scotty is just given a chance. And even though the rest of the team really isn't all that into it, when he is given that chance and he's able to more or less prove himself or Benny does it for him, uh, he fits in and he finds that new family. Um, so reaching out to other people and just letting them know that they're welcome, I think. And then hospitality. Yeah. Hospitality (laughs) for sure. And, you know, all these years later, he has Scotty has a framed picture of himself with these same friends amongst Mm -hmm. all of his baseball memorabilia. And this is something that I'm excited to point out because I'd never noticed it before. Um, At the very end of the film, Scott and Benny make eye contact after he's stolen home and they give each other the thumbs up. Well, Mm -hmm. at the very beginning of the film, 
when Scotty catches the ball for the first time, they give each other a thumbs up there too. So it's like the the moment that seals their friendship, they give each other a thumbs up. And then here, 30 years later, they're still in contact with each other and they're still giving each other that same thumbs up. <laughs> it, it's so cool. I hadn't ever noticed that before. Yeah. Like I said, I, I, I think, I don't know if it's thematic, but I would say relevance is as I have gotten older, something that will eventually happen to you, Chad. Um, uh, it's interesting to me to look at like wedding photos. So I've been married for 12 years, well, 12 and some change. And I look at like, I had, what was it? Seven groomsmen or something like that. Six or seven groomsmen. And I look at pictures of my wedding party now, and I still think very fondly of those times and the people that were in my wedding. But I realize that almost none of them are in my life now. Like, I I feel like if I was if I was narrating some picture of like my groomsmen, they would just be kind of like fading off. Like, like just like the scene in the sandlot. And I was like, so-and-so got too into this thing and moved to a different state, (laughs) you know, like, um, you know, so-and-so got married, had this many kids and we never heard from them again. Um, uh, but then again, there, you know, there is a relationship or two that has kind of withstood the test of time. And, uh, it's, it's awesome to see, um, just because people aren't in your life for an incredibly long time doesn't mean they, that their impact isn't felt for a long time. I like that a lot. And there's this other idea that the film presents of how everybody gets one chance to do something great. And I don't think you're just given one chance to do something great, <laughs> but it's it's about finding the chances that you are given and not squandering them like like Babe Ruth teaches us in the movie <laughs> is uh, <laughs> just like Babe Ruth teaches us. Yeah, just like Babe Ruth teaches us, Mr. Mr. LaFleur, um he tells us that if one of those chances come by us, we want to seize it, we want to take advantage of it, and we want to uh prove to other people that we can be something great, that we can do something great. Um at the start of the film when he's telling the story of how Babe Ruth called his shot he says nobody believed it because nobody done it before. So go out and be that person who's trailblazing, who's doing something new, who's taking advantage of the shots they're being given. Uh, I, I really like that idea. And yeah, I think that pretty much sums it up. Anything else? Well, I, I think so. So something that's something that sticks out to me in, in relation to like the, this moment of greatness while there are exceptions and there are things that everyone can sit around and, and acknowledge are great things. I would say that greatness is another one of the things that we could chalk up to perspective. Uh-huh. So if we look at, if we look at this movie, um, the movie is told in such a way to say that Benny has one, one big opportunity for greatness for immortality that makes him a legend. Um, and that is, you know, that's basically, you know, getting the ball back. Um, this incredible feat that he does pickling the beast, pickling the beast. But honestly, that's probably, that probably pales in comparison to doing what you've already talked about and inviting Scotty to the group, right? Like pickling the beast probably does not change anyone's life as much as inviting Scotty into this group of friends does for Scotty. 
Well, and the fact that he pickles the beast to help Scotty in the first place. You yeah. Know? I mean, like, it, like he, he helps him and that obviously is going to, to help uh, Scotty, but just imagine him sitting home alone, playing with his tinker toys and being sad that his stepdad doesn't love him. <laughs> that's, that's a terrible story. But being invited in is um, is a an incredible action in and of itself. So, I agree. Uh, it, it is about perspective. Do you have any final thoughts that you wanted to mention about the movie before we conclude? Um, I mean, I don't have anything in particular. Uh, I I just think it's a really great movie. I assume if people are listening to this, they've seen it, so they already know it's a great movie. <laughs> Probably. I hope so. It's one of those things where like you. You don't have to like baseball, but it'll kind of almost make you like want to like baseball. Um, it's one of the it's one of the movies that I'm excited to watch with my son. I just can't, but because it's not set like in any kind of like present day, like it do, it ages very well because it is just a it is basically just a memory. Um, so it's set in like a certain time, so that never really gets old. It's a great family film, and it's a lot of fun and. Every time I see it, I just, I, I never am disappointed. I never get bored. I never, I never go, man, I wish I was doing something else right now. Um, and I just think there's not a lot of films like that. So kudos, Sandlot, you win. <laughs> I, I was probably more emotional watching it today than I'd ever been watching it before. Uh, I think part of that is just the way I approach movies for the podcast is I like give all my attention into it and I do my best to step into the shoes of the characters and identify with them and try and feel their struggles and rejoice in their happy moments. <laughs> um, and so there are, there were definitely a few moments in the movie that uh, I teared up a little bit. And it, it's just amazing to me that this movie that impacted me so much as a kid can continue to impact me now that I'm in my mid twenties. So your prep for the show is to basically Daniel day Lewis, the film. Yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if that's all we have to say, that is the end of the official 60th episode of Cinescope. Thank you so much for being with me tonight, Mikey. As always, Chad, I'm so glad that you let me come on and just say whatever I feel like saying about a movie that I really like. It's a great privilege. And I'm glad you were able to. And hopefully it won't be another year before you're <laughs> before you're back I, on the show. I certainly hope not, Chad. <laughs> not because of the lack of desire. So. Yes, sir. Contact for the show, facebook.com slash Cinescope Podcast and at Cinescope Pod on Twitter. Please go to iTunes, help us out by rating, reviewing, subscribing. Big help with visibility and helping us to expand our audience. If you have any feedback or ideas, or if you're interested in co-hosting, uh, email me at the Cinescope Podcast at gmail.com. Now, Mikey, where can people find you and your shows and all that kind of stuff? Well, like I mentioned at the beginning, um, the easiest way to find real world theology is to go to realworldtheology.com. That's R-E-E-L worldtheology.com. We have a blog there, tons of reviews. We have a staff of great writers and like a dozen contributors. So there's almost always something new every day. Uh, you can find us at Real World Theo on Twitter. You can find me at Physification on Twitter. Uh, we have a, if you're interested in talking theme um, or just watching lots of fun trailers, um, then you can come and join the Real World Theology uh, Facebook discussion group. Uh, there, we have, a, we have a pretty good community in there. 
lots of uh, very civil yet lively discussion, <laughs> which is something I think is rare these days. So if you just love film and you want to talk to people who are thoughtful about film um, in a, like I said, a civil but lively way, then feel free to join us there. Uh, I think it's uh, actually doesn't have a feed because it's a discussion group, but if you just search real world theology, you'll see the page and then you'll see the discussion group and just, just ask to join the discussion group. We'll, we'll likely let you in unless you just joined Facebook like two days ago and your picture is just like of a, a scantily clad woman, like taking a <laughs> selfie, then we're probably not going to let you in. But other than that, you've got a pretty good chance. I'll be sure to link all of those things in the show notes. Uh, the, the best place to find me is at Chadadada on Twitter. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A and facebook.com slash chad.hopkins. And don't forget, I have my other podcast going on. We just released episode 11 this week of An American Workplace, where we talk about The Office and are going episode by episode for that. And it's a lot of fun. And you can find that where podcasts can be found and at our website, workplacepodcast.com. And all of the show notes for this show and all of the contact information just discussed can be found at our website, thecinescopepodcast.com. And that's all for this week. Thanks again, Mikey, once again. It's been awesome talking to you after a long time not talking. <laughs> mm, well, see, but we've still kind of interacted online. Yes, we have. You know, we, we've been keeping the bond strong. Yes, sir. That's for sure. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm part of that discussion group as well. So I, I see your opinions. You see my opinions all the time. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 60. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with episode 61. Have fun and celebrate movies. Bye-bye.